This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. It is a big story. It's the news story of 2022, without a doubt. The overturn of Roe v. Wade. Is it also a religion news story? Well, it's listed as number one by Religion News Association for 2022, but oddly enough, in their description of this big, big story, this historic story, they don't mention religion. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. The overturn of Roe v. Wade, was that your top religion story along with RNS? Yes, that was my story for this year. The year is, like you said, going to be remembered for that. But I think it's very important to see that this decision was a door opening into another era in the debates about abortion. And to some degree, I think it's proper to think of this, and I think this is what the court intended, to see this as a federalism issue, that they lacking a clear constitutional standing on abortion rights, they sent it back to the states. And the point I've tried to make in our podcast and in my writings, both the National Column and at Get Religion, is to some degree trying to develop state-by-state abortion policies shows us the degree to which America has been divided and that the center of our debate has vanished. If you look at polls about what Americans believe about religion and abortion and government and everything that goes into those subjects, they're somewhere in the middle. Very few people want an unencumbered right to abortion, let alone third trimester, let alone abortion up to the moment of birth. But they haven't been told through the years by the media, they haven't been accurately told what the Roe versus Wade regime actually allowed. So they're pro-Roe, even though they oppose many of the effects of Roe. Meanwhile, on the other side, we have people like myself, quite frankly, who are, we know what we believe about the science and then the theology of conception and abortion. But at the same time, some people on that side of the issue don't realize where the American people are. And so once again, we have trouble getting a policy that reflects the actual mind of America because we're not talking about what the mind of America is on this issue. And Americans would probably settle for something like a European policy on abortion, which is where abortion is available early in the pregnancy, depending on how you want to define early, but that in the second and third trimesters, it's it's all but banned. I think it's very crucial that some of the the, the attempts for a complete ban went down to defeat in the midterms. While meanwhile, down in Florida, kind of the emerging realist of the Republican world, Ron DeSantis, didn't go for a complete ban. He backed a strong bill, but I think, doesn't it ban after 12 weeks in Florida? I forget exactly what the limit is. It's not a pure heartbeat bill, but it's a very strong bill 
again, second and third trimester, but he didn't go for a full ban. And that policy was extremely popular in Florida, and didn't, he didn't have any trouble defending it. So once again, the big idea here, the fall of Roe demonstrates to us the difficulty of actual dialogue and tolerance in American life and the difficulty of getting our media to communicate that Americans want some sort of centrist stance on some of these crucial issues. And I would also apply that to the First Amendment and the clashes with the sexual revolution and LGBTQ issues in particular. I think that would apply in many cases. We're going to see that apply to battles over trans procedures for minors and a host of other issues. America remains a pretty conservative, centrist country, but we're ruled by elites based in blue zip codes that are a part of the kind of crystallized liberal religious and secular left, whereas the Republican Party still has to answer in large part to a lot of very conservative people sometimes who don't want centrist policies either. What I found puzzling on that top story from RNS was when they actually put it in writing, I didn't see any religion angle there. Mm -hmm. It was really kind of just Roe was overturned and it had political fallout in the midterms. Yeah. So what is missing from their wording is a fairly obvious subject. There's no mention in their description, either in the ballot or what they put up on their website for the result, there's no mention of the attacks on churches and crisis pregnancy centers from coast to coast. There's no mention of illegal demonstrations at the houses of the justices involved in the decision. There's no mention of kind of some of the, I would consider, reactions on the left that were just as extreme as some of the reactions on the right. That's a very good point that you made. It's a very secular wording, but readers should notice what's missing from that description. And what's missing from that description, quite frankly, is the the kind of violence that had occurred afterwards, much of which did focus on religious targets. When people are running around with hammers knocking the head of Mary off of statues in front of Catholic churches, that's a fairly religious act. But that's nowhere to be found in the RNA's wording of the importance of this story. Number two, candidates embracing Christian nationalist themes gain numerous Republican nominations but fare less well in general midterm elections while experts and activists debate the extent and alleged danger of a fusion of American and Christian identity. It goes on to talk about, again, Donald Trump and election results. So what does the media mean by Christian nationalism? Well, let's do one thing first. This has to be the first documented case of a major media organization downplaying Donald Trump. So th there's something here in this wording that they are more angry about and fear more than they fear Donald Trump. I would argue that some very conservative candidates did very well all across the United States, and some of them, especially like in Florida, took positions that 
many people associated with the RNA and with major news publications would consider, they may consider Christian nationalists, but th those candidates did fine in large part because they were qualified. And I was expecting this to happen. I didn't expect this to go as high as number two in the poll. But you can tell what the RNA thought was the most important issue by on the ballot, this number two story, the Christian nationalism story, was listed number one. So it was the very first thing that people voting in the poll saw. And so there was kind of a, a bias of selection in where it was placed in the poll itself. At this point, I don't know what Christian nationalism means. As someone who did a graduate degree in church state studies decades ago, back at Baylor University, back in the, the 70s, I'm well aware of the church state debates over the degree to which the Western Christian heritage shaped the founding documents of our nation. But I don't think that's what this poll is asking about. When you look at the wording of that, the extent and alleged danger of a fusion of American and Christian identity. I'm going to point out something in the poll that this won't surprise our listeners at all to hear me say this. I actually think this whole debate about Christian nationalism is actually a reference to a story that turned up at the number nine slot in this poll. So if we jump in the top 10 American religion stories, for the first time the, the RNA divided U.S. religion stories and international, which makes it much harder to discuss the year, much more complicated. But if you jump all the way down to number nine, you get this story. And this is a story that I had rated higher. Here's the wording for number nine. Non-denominational Christian churches soar in growth, according to the newly released 2020 U.S. Religion Census, et cetera, et cetera. There are now more non-denominational churches than any denomination's churches but Southern Baptists, and their 21 million adherents outnumber every group but Catholics. What's the connection between non-denominationalism and this current wave of concern in blue zip code press about Christian nationalism. I would argue that almost every single case of Christian nationalism expressed in a way that's truly radical and truly bizarre, and yes, and I would add dangerous, it's almost all coming from the world of non-denominational Christianity. The fact that we continue to take I'm not going to name names here, but an isolated, non-denominational church leader outside of Nashville who continues to make these bizarre, truly Christian nationalist claims, however you want to define the term. The fact that he's a major media figure, even though he has no connection to any major groups within American evangelicalism or the institutions that define it denominations, seminaries, publishing houses, parachurch groups, etc. I would argue that the extreme forms of Christian nationalism, which is a very small part of the American religious scene, that's almost all coming from the non-denominational world. And the press kind of enjoys playing up that threat. Now, if you go back to trying to define the term, Christianity Today 
defined it this way. I mean, that's a centrist to, some would say, slightly left of center voice within the spectrum of evangelicalism. And Christianity today defined Christian nationalism as the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Popularly, Christian nationalists assert that America is and must remain a Christian nation. And here's the crucial clause, not merely as an observation about American history, but as a prescriptive program for what America must continue to be in the future. Well, my question about that is, if you look at the polls, how, other than if they somehow got their hands on nuclear weapons, how would the tiny percentage of the American voting public that favors some of the more radical stances on positions like abortion, gay rights, or whatever and ever, if you look at polls, how are these Christian nationalists who, by the way, also have zero power in American media, higher education, regular education, and the mass media in Hollywood, how would these people propose to create a theocracy? What is the threat that have our media institutions so scared of Christian nationalism defined as attempting to like take the nation back? for their view of Christianity. And that's only one view of Christianity, of course. I just don't see it. I do see this as an extension of the kind of fever dream that has set in after the election of Trump and the defeat of the Democratic Party in many ways. And then, of course, changes in the Supreme Court. But right now, we're at a stage where if the Supreme Court took a stance that 25 years ago would have been considered normal thought on the First Amendment at the American Civil Liberties Union, you're going to see major news organizations of the level of the New York Times, National Public Radio, and perhaps even the Associated Press describe that decision as either directly reflecting Christian nationalism or being somehow adjacent to it because it would allow voices on both sides of these issues to speak under the First Amendment and it would in, allow some conservative and traditional Christians, Jews, and others in our nation to actually act on their beliefs in public life. That was liberalism when I was growing up as a card-carrying member of the American Civil Liberties Union a long time ago that today in some of our media almost comes across as Christian nationalism. So at this point, I don't think the media knows what that term means other than what's, what's the old saying about the, the F word fundamentalist. It's defined as everybody who believes something I don't believe and they're all stupid and dangerous. And yes, I believe some of them are dangerous or strange or truly extreme, although I guess I would defend their First Amendment rights as well because I'm a First Amendment liberal, but I don't see a looming popular wave waiting to somehow restore theocracy in America. But clearly there are many journalists who do, and thus we see this as the number two item in this poll. 
which, quite frankly, cracks me up. I did not have this in my top 10 at all, but I placed the non-denominational story somewhere, I've got two different versions of the poll, somewhere around six or seven is where I have the non-denominational item in the top 10. But in that non-denominational item, I would have included a sentence that said, non-denominational groups are responsible for some of the more extreme statements in American public life right now. These kind of loose cannon preachers, radio people, whatever, that that's where some of the Christian nationalism is coming from. I would have added that to my wording of the non-denominational question. Do the media know the difference between a Christian like me who says, yes, Christianity has had a profound influence and effect on the United States and Western civilization, but I don't think the United States is a new Israel, a Christian theocracy. Do the media understand the difference between that and the genuine Christian nationalism? Well, frankly, no, but I, I think it's important if you look at it from a historical perspective. And whenever I say this, it makes some people very mad, but I'm going to say it again. I would argue that America is not a Christian nation, it's a Protestant nation. And the minute you say it's a Protestant nation in the context of the founding, you have a range of religious groups and beliefs that affected that, range from deists and Unitarians all the way over to people, Baptists and other free thinkers, Catholics and a bunch of others. And yes, I put Catholics kind of in Protestant there. But what I mean by this is from the beginning, America has been structured on some idea of religious tolerance between competing religious groups and that none of them are going to get their way in every single debate. They're going to have to learn to tolerate each other and live with people with different religious beliefs and practices than their own. And by that, I mean, it's, it's a functional Protestant approach. You have many, many, many different groups, and none of them are in control. And the state is not supposed to hand any of them money backing the practice of their faith. At the same time, the court would stress that the state is not supposed to be prejudiced against them because of the practice of their faith, and that they should, and this brings up some other stories that affect this poll, that the court is trying to find a way to treat religious groups, nonprofits, the same way that it treats secular nonprofits. That religion is not a uniquely favored form of speech and behavior, but religion is also not a uniquely dangerous form of speech or behavior, and that religious groups shouldn't have limits placed on them that secular nonprofits would get. I mean, you can't back labor unions and environmental groups and all this and make them eligible for grants, or you can't make secular private schools eligible for grants, while then saying that religious parents don't have the same rights to apply for that money as well. Now, we saw that this year in a case up in Maine, if my memory rings true, and that shows up in the poll in their number five story. But once again, your point, America is a very complex, diverse religious culture. And now with the rising numbers 
of non-religious or religiously unaffiliated people in kind of a political coalition with truly secular people, I think the court is struggling to try to figure out how to handle a nation in which there are millions of Americans who don't want to tolerate anyone that they view as intolerant. Let me run that by again. The court's trying to figure out how to handle Americans who can't tolerate people that they believe are intolerant. And that's a true test of liberalism and a true test of kind of the multicultural, multi-religious, what I put kind of Protestant with a lower P description of America. Yet historically, if you go back and look at our documents, yes, they're strong elements of religious thought coming out of Western civilization and Western philosophy and lots of the debates that occurred in Europe before the founding of the United States. There are religious influences in our documents, but those documents point us toward a society striving for tolerance, not theocracy. And although strange as this would sound, what would the secular version of a theocracy look like? Because I think there are some Americans who are truly secular fundamentalists and think that their views are supposed to be enforced by the government. The number three on the RNA list, an outside report on the Southern Baptist Convention says denominational leaders mishandled sex abuse claims and treated and mistreated victims. Where did you have this one? I have the SBC story at number three. So we have that the same. That's a huge, important group dealing with a huge, important issue and trying to do what it can within the limitations of its free church polity to somehow take the herd of angry cats that is the Southern Baptist Convention and trying to get it to act together on a controversial issue with millions of dollars of implications for Southern Baptist institutions. But remember once again, there is nothing the Southern Baptist Convention can do to a local congregation on its behavior on any issue other than at the local or regional level kick them out of Southern Baptist life. Meanwhile, Southern Baptist institutions with insurance policies and bank accounts and trust funds, I think we're going to find courts make them responsible for their actions. And by that I mean missionary boards, publishing houses, seminaries, etc. But the rest of Southern Baptist life is really going to struggle to get a coherent institutional approach to this issue. Number four on the list, Terry, many religious congregations struggle to return to pre-pandemic attendance levels. Yep, that's almost exactly where I have that as well. That's an incredibly important story, and it affects many others that we've discussed throughout this year. Let me link it to some. It's obviously affecting the closing of a lot of churches and religious institutions in different parts of cities. It has taken the demographic implosion of the liberal mainline Protestant churches it has sped that up at least five years in terms of impact on attendance, especially, and the need to close a lot of their churches. It's created even more of a crisis in some, but not all, parts of Roman Catholicism. I wrote a piece the other day about National Public Radio coming to Knoxville, to my backyard, 
I wrote a piece about how they talked only to people on the left, and they didn't capture that while this is causing a lot of decline, strangely enough, there are a lot of churches that have stayed the same or have even grown within the last two to three years. These are not necessarily churches that opposed vaccines and didn't cooperate with distancing regulations or other forms of COVID restrictions. But there have been growing churches as well as declining churches. When I write up my own version of the top 10 USA stories, I'm going to add a sentence to that one that mentions that the press also needs to deal with the religious groups that grew during this period of time, because that's a part of kind of looking through the telescope, looking forward post-COVID. You need to deal with the growing groups as well as the declining groups. Real quickly, this really is a bigger story for mainline Protestantism. I mean, the pandemic has been a gut punch to their attendance, and I haven't seen anyone who's watching it, Ryan Burge, anybody else, who thinks they're going to recover from that. Right. And the National Public Radio story, to its credit, included a paragraph in there focusing on how this is hitting the mainline groups. I mean, the Episcopal Church numbers that came out recently were absolutely shocking in terms of the number of churches. 85, 90% of the churches in America in the Episcopal Church that are, have attendances way under 100 per church. And a large majority were talking attendances down in the 30s now. But try to imagine how this links up with another story we'll get to in a minute. If you were the United Methodist Church right now, and you're facing the departure of somewhere between 35 and 40% of your congregations in the United States, and preliminary research indicates that about you're going to lose about, oh, an extremely high number of the churches that are among your few churches that are growing. Well, picture now trying to fund the structure of the United Methodist Church post-COVID while also losing 40% of your churches, including the majority of your growing churches. So I just leaped ahead in the poll. But you can see how these stories, as always, get connected. So, yeah, I agree with you there. This is bigger than a mainline Protestant story, but there's no question that's the fuse on the demographic bomb post-COVID, is how this affects the world of centrist or liberal mainline Protestantism. Number five, Supreme Court issues a raft of religious freedom rulings. Again, it goes on to name them. You had a different story at the five slot. Why? Well, I actually had a different story all the way up at number two. I mean, I, I can't get into a direct comparison of all the numbers here. I actually have that Supreme Court decision right about that high in my list. So let's go ahead and just deal with it straight on. It's a very interesting question in that it, it has one item, the ruling in favor of a death row inmate, greater access to his chaplain. That was an example of a church-state decision in which the old left-right coalition held up and voted, kind of stood together. And then the Boston law allowing a Christian flag to be flown at City Hall, you really need to say that to allow a Christian flag to be flown at City Hall with the same access as a host of other flags, rainbow flags, other cultural flags, the issue there was whether Christianity could be excluded 
from a policy of kind of access to that flagpole. And then the next one, which I mentioned earlier, the case up in Maine, the RNA poll says requiring Maine to allow religious schools access to tax-funded tuition aid. Now, that sounds pretty nasty. That sounds like, wow, we've got tax dollars paying for religious schools. I would have worded it this way, requiring Maine to allow private religious schools access to tax-funded tuition aid made available to other private schools. In other words, this was once again an equal access issue. To what degree could you write a policy sending financial aid to the parents of students in private schools, yet somehow say that religious private schools were not eligible for the same program? So we've got a couple of things there involving equal access, which is something the court has been wrestling with. And I think it should be worded to stress the fact that these are private schools, secular and religious, and the issue was aid to the parents sending schools. I don't think anybody was talking about writing a check to the schools. The issue is whether parents could use those tuition vouchers to a religious school. Well, I would stress, if you get into the details there, this is a big theme in the news right now, there were actually religious schools that were eligible, but those were religious schools who had doctrines that didn't offend the state government, whereas the schools that had doctrines that offended the state government, lifestyle codes affecting sexuality or teachings on certain topics in the school, a certain type of religion was eligible, but a certain type of religion wasn't eligible. And so there's that story again. Number six involves the rapper formerly known, yeah. or the R&B artist formerly known as Kanye West, now known as Ye. Does he belong at the six slot? Well, I would have worded that. That didn't make my top ten. But if you wrote a strong item on trends in anti-Semitism this year, yes, that probably is a top ten story. I don't know where I would have put it in my ten, but if you had written up the rapid, shocking increase of anti-Semitic attacks on the streets of New York and some of the other things that have happened, if you had written this up purely as a case study in rising number of acts of anti-Semitism, I would have much more supported that story than kind of Yee and Kyrie Irving and kind of the sports and pop culture face of that issue. I actually think the anti-Semitic violence was a much bigger story this year than, you know, one bizarre dinner involving Donald Trump and a rapper. I'm curious, this is what I'm has kind of concerned me about the anti-Semitism, because you can point to these one-offs, like Kanye West and Nick Fuentes, but my perception of the media's coverage of anti-Semitism on the rise is misdirected toward those things and should have started in 2019 in New York City. Yeah, that's a good way of restating what I just said. But if you actually go and ask them for their take on anti-Semitism during the last year, I think you would have gotten a much more general statistical look at violence and anti-Semitic speech and vandalism Etc. You would have gotten a more traditional anti-Semitism concern, and I frankly would share that. 
I'm much more worried about that than I am about pop culture. Terry, you had up higher what the RNA list had at number 10. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints endorses the Respect for Marriage Act, breaking with other conservative denominations and saying it would support rights for same-sex couples as long as these rights did not infringe upon religious groups' rights. Why did you have that higher? Well, this is the next stage of the battle over the First Amendment discussions on speech and religious practice in the United States. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been trying to find a centrist position. And the issue here, and it's been a heated debate on Twitter and elsewhere, is whether this bill did a good job of protecting religious liberty as well as protecting same-sex marriage. And by the way, same-sex marriage, of course, is backed by a majority of Americans right now. But I, I really think that this is going to be one of the huge stories of 23 if we get a decision out of the U.S. Supreme Court in favor of that Colorado webpage designer and we get a clear ringing affirmation of First Amendment rights on free speech for religious believers on issues of sexuality when those beliefs and their their work and their speech and practices and art, etc., clashes with the sexual revolution. So I have that higher because you know how important I think First Amendment cases are. So I'm glad it made the top 10 for the RNA, but I would have put it higher. Terry, take us through the rest of the top 10 religion stories of 2022 and give us your thoughts. Yeah. Number seven, and once again, these are the USA stories. They had the um, Interior Department document on indigenous children in the schools and prejudice against children of non-Christian faiths, etc. I didn't have that in my top 10. It's an interesting story, but frankly, that was a much bigger story in Canada than it was in the United States, so I didn't have it there. Their number eight is the slow motion schism, that's a nice wording, as in five decades, within the United Methodist Church. I had that, I believe, slightly higher, but that's, I think, in a good position. Their number nine is the non-denominational story that I would have actually, that's where I would have put a lot of the political chaos involving religious images and speech this year, so I had that higher. And number 10 was Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. Now, here's the major huge difference between my 10 and their 10. If you look at their number 11, you have an item that the way I would word it, I have it as the number two story of the year after row. And their number 11 out of the top 10 is more than a dozen states enact or consider laws restricting public school instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity, policies supported by many religious conservatives, but decried as don't say gay laws by critics. And critics there, of course, means primarily the mainstream press. I had that as the number two story. And during these annual talks, you always at the end ask me to look ahead and predict. So let me go ahead and do that. The reason I have that number two is if you phrase that question, as a battle over parental rights within public schools in America and within the weakening public school environment post-COVID, that's an incredibly important story. And the appeals, the don't say gay appeals, actually had to do with whether parents 
could exclude their children from certain types of public school education that they've believed violated their religious beliefs and their moral beliefs. We saw that clash involving parental rights in Virginia a year or two ago, and in the midterms this time we really saw it in Florida related to parental rights in matters of sexuality, education, and trans issues in particular. So that's a really important story. And now if you throw in one more element, I think we're going to see class action lawsuits soon from detransitioners. And a lot of that's going to involve religious motivations and beliefs. So this, that's why I had that story rated all the way up at number two. The story about the United Methodist Church is what they call a slow-motion schism strikes me as a not just a U.S. story, but certainly an international story, given that the fastest-growing sector of the United Methodist yeah. Church is in Africa. But functionally, right now it's an American story because COVID prevented the meeting of the Global General Conference, which is where the doctrinal conservatives were winning. You take away that global conference and you're left with the American hierarchy completely in control. And that's what's driving the story right now. So take us through the, the remainder of the list. The United Methodist story was number eight. Number seven was another story that I thought was really an international story, not a national. And that was the one about the Interior Department report on the U.S. government collaborating with churches in schools with indigenous children and the Christianizing Native American story. That was a huge story in Canada. I didn't think it was as big a story in the United States. Number eight is United Methodism. Number nine is the one I mentioned earlier, which is the non-denominational story. And I'm glad it's in the top 10. I would have put it higher and I would have directly linked it, as I said earlier, to the Christian nationalism debates in the midterms. The number 10, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints endorses the Respect for Marriage Act. That's an update on the attempts to get some sort of law protecting same-sex marriage, which is very popular in America, quite frankly, with voters, but at the same time, respecting religious liberty. A lot of Christians, of people who work together really well on a lot of things, thought that that piece of legislation didn't overtly protect religious liberty enough. That all may be mute in the sense that we're going to have the Supreme Court decision soon on the Colorado case, the second Colorado case, the one involving the website designer. We could get a very strong and finally clear First Amendment decision from the court on that issue, at which point a lot of these other things are going to be interpreted in light of that court decision. So that's the rest of the RNA top 10. What about any international angles? The international poll, this is the first time they've done that, and I think it makes discussing the big stories of the year a bit more complex. Their number one story was my number two story. Their number one was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I simply didn't think the religion element of that story was as important as they did. And I say that ironically as an Orthodox Christian, and someone who attends a parish that has historic ties to the Russian Orthodox Church. I think you have to accept Putin's view of the war to put the religion angle to make it the single central point of the war, as opposed to, say, just a threat to Russia's border with NATO moving in, which is a much more political story. But I had that very high in the international story. Their number two story 
is the one that I had number one in international stories, and that's what's going on in Iran and the rise of the women's revolt against the clerical system in Iran. And I had that as my number one, the battles over headscarves. And you go back to Afghanistan and you look at what's happening there now with females, girls and women being excluded from education almost completely. And then they had the uh, Canada story, the indigenous children story, and Pope Francis responding to it, number three. And their number four was the death of Queen Elizabeth. And their number five, I had higher in my list, and I would have rated it like number two or three in the international stories. And that's the UN accusing China of human rights violation, crimes against humanity, very strong language in the crackdown on Muslims and ethnic groups in China. So that's the top of the list. We don't have time to go all the way through the international. But I frankly agreed with the top of the international list, much more than I did with kind of what they did with the nationals. So what do you think will be at least kind of a handful of candidates for the top religion story of 2023? I think that's up to the court. We're not in an election year. There could also be always be something coming out of the way. But when in doubt, look at clashes between the First Amendment, religious liberty, freedom of speech, and the sexual revolution in various forms. Look for clashes in law. Look for clashes in education. Who knows what DeSantis might continue to do in his battles with Disney. But, you know, when in doubt, this is a repeat of what I've been saying for years now, keep watching the First Amendment warfare at the Supreme Court. So if I was predicting, and if we get a very clear First Amendment rights decision in this case in Colorado, the cultural and political left and religious left is going to go crazy over that. And I could see that as my early nod for next year's number one. At the same time, if you look at who they picked as the religion newsmaker of the year, I agreed with that one, too, and I was shocked. I thought it would be Samuel Alito would be number one. He was number two because of the, I thought the Roe thing would come back again. To their credit, the voters in this poll picked the Iranian women as the number one newsmakers in the world. And who knows what will happen with that story and Afghanistan in the next year. So that's another chance to look ahead. It could be a return to more of a global story since we aren't in an election year in the United States. What's the best piece of advice that you can give us on consuming news in 2023 with about a minute? I would keep watching the development of alternative news sources. I think the evolution of the Substack work of Barry Weiss turning into an actual publication is a really important development. And the free press is what she calls that. That's not going to be a full service news site. But it's going to be kind of, here's where you read about the stories that other people don't want to read. And what are those? A lot of it's going to be First Amendment. A lot of it's going to be the continuing tweaking of the press on how they handle COVID and what COVID actually was about and what happened with the creation of the virus. And at the same time, you're going to see stuff there about trans issues and the detransitioners that you won't read and if we get a class action lawsuit in the United States, something similar to what's happening in UK, 
Watch for that as a huge story, and there will be religious elements. And people are going to have to look to alternative media, probably, for coverage of that. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. See you later. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.